0: Hello viewers! I'm Frances. I'm here with the SAF girls talking about tough things and this podcast is really going to give you an abbreviated condensed version of what we learned in our hashtag me activism course and what we now know so we can share with you so you can go out and be better activists and serve in your community.
1: So that was Frances who really needs no introduction. I'm Alice and we also have Sarah with us. Say hi, Sarah. Hi. <laughs> uh, we're so excited to have you guys here. So uh, as Francis said, we're just going to talk through what we learned from Professor Fallon, as well as what we've learned from all the media that we've had to intake as part of this course. It's been like a nice mix of readings, TED Talks, videos, web pages. So we're excited to get into it.
0: Absolutely. I think the biggest thing we should talk about really is the story by Chanel Miller, Know My Name. And I really believe she's a woman who needs no introduction. You know, not only is she an artist, entrepreneur, author, woman who unfortunately was sexually assaulted by Brock Turner at Stanford. And we really got to dive into her character and this thought process. And she really let us dive into her personal life and shared some you know, very intimate, upsetting, Details really just trying to articulate what a survivor goes through and how difficult it is and how difficult it can be to get someone prosecuted and you know all the obstacles that go along with that
2: I just want to say that that book is so well written like she's an amazing author it's like she does her best to bring us into her experience I cried so much during it I got angry that was her purpose i'm pretty sure to just try to make you feel what she felt i think it's just it's an amazing book to sort of tie in this class and talk about me too because the book does talk about that and
1: yeah the thing that i loved so much about reading the book was how it wasn't short it was very long and it took its time to delve into every different step of the process it was slow moving which I think is so important because the media wants to move so quickly past the experiences of sexual assault victims. It's like, Oh, well, you're, they're in jail. So we're going to ignore you now. And then three months later when your rapist is is released, we'll show you a little bit of screen time and then you're going to disappear again. And after that three months, you know, that's, that's long enough. You should be over it. Just shut up now. And she just continues to say, no, no, that's not how it is. And I'm going to change that. And I sure hope she has. She's certainly changed my perspective on how I will view assault. I, I really just appreciated how honest she was about the pain that it took to go through trial. Because I think that Chanel is a unique example of someone who is strong enough to go to court. Any backlash I've seen about her online is followed by people saying, well, the reason she could do this was because she was strong enough. Not everyone can do this. And I just think it's important when we read her story to remember, there are certainly thousands of women, women and men sitting there knowing that they've been assaulted and they will never tell anyone, or they might tell someone when they're 50, really a big, a big thing. I didn't realize that.
0: Absolutely. I mean, Alice, you hit it right on the head, you know, especially as we learned in some of our other modules, how oftentimes when survivors come forward, Depending on where they are and who they're coming forward to, they can suffer from institutional betrayal, which a little short synopsis on that really is the fact that the institution or workplace that is sworn to protect you doesn't. They'll kind of push it away and kind of neglect the story or they'll spin it, and, which really leads to a lot of survivors feeling probably more PTSD, guilt, shame, fear, because if they can't help me, who's going to? I guess that's the big thing is really that we've been noticing that a lot. That's been a big theme throughout our course. And I think if Chanel had been a woman of color, besides Asian American, I think that this discussion would have turned out a lot differently. And I think if Brock Turner had been a black male, you know, he wouldn't have gotten six months in jail, he may have faced probably one of the fuller sentences, which is just goes to show you that the criminal justice system is still prejudice and backwards when it comes to sentencing people and they don't do it fairly. I hate to say that Chanel Miller was fortunate to be an Asian American and that it happened to her. But if it had happened to a woman of color, I don't know if we would have seen just the results in general that he was able to be prosecuted at all. I think that was the remarkable thing out of this and wouldn't have happened if it had just been this white male, you know, a woman of color. I think it would have been shoved under the rug as Stanford tried to do anyway. So,
2: right, Francis, I did the institutional betrayal module today and I thought it fit in like perfectly with Chanel's story. Uh, we discussed before we started recording how Stanford was trying to pay her the money and about her memorial and at Stanford and things like that, but also. You also talked about intersectionality and how it would have been different if she had, like you said, she was Asian American. And there was a part in the book where I think she talked to the probation officer and she put her down as white. And she was so angry because she was like, I'm Chinese, too. You've got to put that into account. It's so important to her and her identity. Also, I mean, the whole time they're painting Brock as he was going to be the Olympic medalist. You can do all this stuff. And then at the end, she's breaking down that stuff. And it's actually, he was a partier. He talked about like dropping acid with his friends every weekend. He ran away from a cop once.
1: It's that complete separation of reality. It's a separation from reality that someone like Brock is fortunate enough to be able to do. He is able to do that thing that our parents talk about. That's like, kids will be kids. Go do college, you know. Everybody deserves a right to do college, make a few mistakes. And someone like Chanel, or especially if you are a person of color in the United States, you don't get that, that privilege. There's no guaranteed access to having a doctorate someday. If you graduate high school, you're seen as as succeeding and you have succeeded. I think it's the breakdown there is like the idea of what success is. I don't understand how during that case, people weren't looking at Chanel and saying, holy shit, she's success. Like, this is incredible. Instead, they were looking at Brock and they're like, He's success. He would have been success. It's this backwards definition of what success is.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's sort of how we watched in a promising young woman, and how her well, it wasn't even her, it was her friend, but how you know she was sexually assaulted, they both dropped out of med school and the perpetrator got to go on and became the successful doctor, and I'm not trying to ruin it, but they, their lives faltered. Her friend ended up taking her life. The actress, she did a wonderful job portraying this idea that her life became this... She would do anything for that retribution and that's all because the system failed her so many times and that's a huge example of institutional portrayal as well that medical school just sweeped it right under the rug but when it was the dean's daughter you know this potential at the same dorm chaos broke loose she was freaking out because she knows that young promising future doctors what they're capable of, because really anyone is capable of it. Brock Turner isn't an exception, just because he was a great swimmer, white, came from a nice family. It happens all the time. We've seen it with Bill Cosby. While this does not shock anybody. I mean, Donald Trump, pervert and awful. So obviously, when you think of him, that doesn't surprise you. But when you think about people like that, I think people do that. And people with power get away with all of that. And It always shifts to the woman and what was she wearing? How much had you had to drink? Can you tell me exactly how many shots you took of gin? Why were you out so late? Do you have a boyfriend? The fact that they even had to paint Chanel's boyfriend as this upgrade that Brock would be considered a downgrade already tells you so much about what the prosecution had to go through and then the defense saying, yeah, well you know, maybe she really wanted to have this with Brock
1: also well, as though it's all entirely about physical appearance, as though the fact that her boyfriend is, let's call him hotter than Brock makes her less likely to want to have sex with Brock as though women are just there. Like, ah, oh, can I do better? I can let's go. Let's cheat on the boyfriend right now. Let's do it. No one is doing that. <laughs> really. I've had hundreds of female friends in my life. Not one of them would do that. That's so silly. Well, back to Promising
2: Young Woman, I thought about that movie so much after I watched it. My friend and I watched it together and we were just, the whole time we're just sitting there like watching it in silence. We're like, oh my gosh. But what got me is like, she goes out and tries to lure guys back. The, The scene where she's with the guy and she's acting drunk and then the guy's putting his hand up her dress and then she's awake and he's like, wait a minute, you're not drunk? And she's like, was it better when I was drunk when you didn't need consent from me? I also thought about how when the boys were confronted about the rape was filmed, uh, they were confronted about it. They're like, we were just kids. We were just kids. She was just a kid too then. That's valid for guys to say. We were kids and then girls have to be grown from the minute they hit puberty before that. Well, also,
0: I just want to say that this also takes place in medical school. These people aren't even in college. These are like early to mid 20s, you aren't a child anymore. And in all honesty, in my eyes, you're not a child the second you hit 18. You really have taken on that full responsibility as an adult, you're paying taxes, you can vote. I think that's crazy that that really was their excuse throughout the movie. And I will add, I love Bo Burnham. I've never seen him in anything serious before. And so to see him in that aspect, when I thought he was this wonderful, well-rounded guy, and then to just participate, not full-heartedly, but to be present, really ru- ruined his character for me.
1: I also wanted to say the Promising Young Woman film was super closely paralleled to one of the websites that we viewed for a module that I did today that was on rape culture. And the similarity is between Promising Young Woman and the Who Are You campaign, which is a New Zealand campaign, I, I believe. We've known New Zealand has been super progressive and really aware of especially women's issues for a long time. Woohoo, they just gave paternal leave and New Zealand passed a law giving women who have miscarriages, I can't remember how long it is, but it's a very generous like multi-month leave from work that's paid, which is awesome. That clip was almost exactly like the first clip from Promising Young Women the clip that they're showing, and they show all these people in between that are making eye contact with a woman as she's being drugged into her own home to be raped that night while she's intoxicated. And every time they make eye contact with a person, I started thinking, were they showing that in Promising Young Woman? Was that what she was watching too? Because I think you could take it further and you could blame the bystander as they were on that website. They were saying, you know, who are you? Are you this person? What are you going to do? Are you going to intervene? That made me think a lot today. I started wondering if I should be more present.
2: So basically it's like she's going through and then she's making eye contact with all these people. You see all these people that could intervene and change the situation so much. I don't know if they're scared or if they think, oh, maybe this will work out by itself or like, oh, this happens all the time. Maybe she was with him. You try to justify it. And then at the end, it's like going in reverse, right? If someone had intervened, she would have been thankful. Like she didn't want that. It goes through all these things. What got me was that her best friend went to the bathroom without her. <laughs> I feel like nobody does that, right?
1: Nobody does that at bars. No, you always I, go with your friends to the you bathroom. Always go with if you are a young woman listening to this, and people tell you it's weird to go to the bathroom with your friends. Always go to the bathroom with your friends. Go in the stall with your friends. Who cares? It's weird to not go to the bathroom with your friends especially in
2: this day and age. Out. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the big
0: thing about the clip that got me say that person ended up that night getting sexually assaulted. Imagine waking up the next day and having to relive every single step you passed or every single person that you potentially knew and all those witnesses that would, I think, would feel shame and guilt over the fact that they didn't intervene. And I think in that same rape culture, we also were asked to examine the rape of Mr. Smith. Which I think the same questioning would have potentially applied to this survivor if she had been sexually assaulted. How late were you? Were you held up? Are you sure you said no? You were wearing something revealing, just as, like, in with Mr. Smith, he's wearing this really nice suit. So he was asking to be robbed, been known to give out money. So, and I think that really alludes to you've been known to go home with men which means nothing. Some women like sex, like that's okay. And they can have as many partners as they want. I don't think that's not a bad thing at all. I can't even imagine that roommate not saying anything. And I'm on the same page as Alice where should I be more cognizant when I'm in bars watching other people? Because I'm so often watching out for myself when I'm in public spaces, when I'm walking at campus alone, I'm not actually looking at other people. I'm watching out in the shadows for myself which then makes me want to be even better for other people. How can I feel empowered enough for them when I don't feel empowered enough for myself? I think that's sometimes, at least for me, when I think of those situations, when I'm in a public space or whenever I went out in Clemson, I was always like, am I fine? Can I walk home? (laughs) You know, kind of,
2: and I mean that genuinely because frat culture. Yeah. It's just like, as women, we have to be hyper aware of our existence. My friend was asking her boyfriend, he goes on runs at night, right? She's like, how do you do that? You're not super scared of getting assaulted or something? Obviously not, because he doesn't really have to worry about that. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen to men, but it happens way less. So we are just talking about how we we're always listening to other people's conversations in public, kind of knowing what's going on in the background, just in case.
1: Yeah, I hate to bring it here, but unfortunately, this feels less like a problem with women because we're women. We're in this class. A lot of people that are viewing these films are going to be women. The large weight of this has to be on men. There's no other way that we can really help every woman out there if it's all on us. You know, we're only half the population. We can't just be expected to help each other. That's just not fair. And I don't say that as a man hater. I have a male partner. He's great. But I don't know if he would step up in these situations out of fear. It's this fear of one's masculinity being undermined if you don't let another man have his way. So yeah, whenever we talk about the, the feminist movement and the, the feminist revolution, I think it really has to be followed by a male revolution. Otherwise, we're only doing half the work. We're not getting anywhere. We can talk all day. And if we're not At the end of the day, trying to challenge our brothers and our dads and our partners and our friends. You know, what I've been reflecting on from this class has been how can I talk to men about this? Because no one's talking to them about it. Whenever I talk about something I've learned to my partner, he is always shocked and he is very caring and very liberal. (laughs) There's a lot of work to be done.
0: And I think it's even harder right now with the political climate. I hate to bring it, make it political, but. I think that we've just started this new revolution. I mean, I remember being 16 and going to the first women's march on Donald Trump's inauguration day and bonding together with thousands of women in downtown Charleston as we marched through the streets. It was a very revolutionary time for me, so I've always continued with that mindset. And yes, there were men there, but there wasn't that many. I also think living in the South makes it a bit more difficult difficult at times because we are stuck in that traditional role and like Alice said a male doesn't really want to impede on someone else's and I hate to say this but territory.
2: About the South it's very conservative obviously but I feel like it's just because those older conservative people are still in power and it's like covering up younger people that are democratic or liberal but yeah it's just like they're masking the majority of people and it's the South is painted as like, oh, they hate women, they, they hate Black people, all this stuff. Well, maybe the, the older people do, but like, we're held down by the standards. Yeah, but that's a fair assessment,
0: Sarah. I mean, that is not what we've painted the South to be, but what our older leaders have, especially as things got even more conservative under the tr- Trump administration and how it's continued to be to solidify contender in 2024 and how a lot of Southern governors are really taking additional measures to secure that or to limit voting rights. And I know that's not this topic, but it is really important. And we've also seen a lot of pushes, especially the last six months, of male legislatures, but also female, because they're also in that same mentality, pushing a lot of anti-abortion legislation as we saw with South Carolina with the six-week fetal heartbeat ban. Fortunately, it was overturned, but that's scary. And that's another new reality, I think, that we also, as women, have to talk about. Because in my humble
1: opinion, you know, women should have the right to choose. My take on that is that if we're seeing all these women in the streets marching and women are educating themselves about activism, women are majoring in women's and gender studies, women are out here doing the work. So I feel like the systems that be are just trying to shut down women, which they will successfully do if they get control over women's bodies. That is a tactic, I think. And I feel like it's very intentional. It's the same reason that we don't have access to healthcare. I had to have a conversation with my insurance because they wouldn't cover my yearly preventative appointment. And I just felt so oppressed and so angry when I was having to talk to them about that. As though I have to have an extra $300 laying around to take care of myself every year. And men don't because they don't have the organs. Therefore, I'm punished for it. You know, it's just... It it's takes two to tango. It so... does take two to tango. <laughs> and we could tango so much better if the men would get out here with us and participate in activism and inform themselves about this kind of stuff. Like It's really scary legislation that's being passed. And it's scary that Things that happened to Chanel were happening to her in 2015. Is that the year? Um, Yeah. That's too recent. And the only reason that her trial went through is because the state saw a white woman with a boyfriend who was intelligent, who they had evidence of being raped. That's why her case went to trial. That is so rare. But not even that, I and not only those factors, but it's also
0: because you had two awesome Swede bicyclists who (laughs) tackled Brock Turner to the ground and said, what is wrong with you? Bystanders. You have Chanel recounting and how the bicyclists like broke down in tears when they met and afterwards because it was so wrong to him. And I guarantee you, and I can't say for a fact, but Sweden is like a very progressive, I would actually say it's more of a feminine culture than it is masculine, value women equally. I can't even imagine what that Swede went through watching that. And in general, someone should have been affected by that. But I also think if it hadn't been them, no one would have done, I really don't know if anyone would have stopped.
1: Francis, I was thinking about that when we were talking about the Swedes, the fact that they are from Sweden, that they are Swedish men and not American men, because an American graduate student is not that mature, I don't feel like, the majority of the time. I'm not saying male or female, I'm just saying an American graduate student, I'm not sure they would have stepped in. What are we doing wrong then? I think the answer is that what we're studying, um, women's studies is optional, and it's something that largely women elect to take. You know, if there was a women's studies 1000, it would probably be really full of fake stuff. It wouldn't be inclusive enough of what's happening socially to women.
2: Right. Uh, One of the first things we did was looking at the Me Too movement in different countries and different places. And I think it's just, this brings in like culture and stuff, all these different cultures and how some of them are very patriarchal and how this movement can't really thrive in those countries like that. But they're, they're fighting almost everybody's, it seemed like they're just starting it. Like, they're just getting it going now because they're afraid to come out because of the male society.
0: My project was on Iran. In media in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of controversy, worthwhile international controversy, over the fact that they do honor killings. Which male family members will kill their daughters or sisters if they somehow dishonored their family. And that could literally be because they were sexually assaulted. I was reading and this father even consulted with a lawyer before he killed his young teen daughter. The maximum his lawyer said he'd get is 10 years. He went on and I'm pretty sure murdered his daughter because he's like, well, I'm not going to get life in prison. Or I'm not going to suffer some a very long time and this will restore honor in my family. Very patriarchal. Islam is a very male-dominant religion. But women are fighting. I mean, they are really trying. And right now they have a bit more moderate in their view, I guess, what we would consider their House of Reps, but a very conservative, what we would consider our Senate. So they're trying to move some measures along.
2: Yeah, and that starts to get into multiculturalism. This is normal for these people in these different places. It's normal to them when more developed countries come in and they're like, this is wrong. You can't do this. They're like, why are you attacking our culture like this? They need to realize from the inside out. So in the United States, there's a ton of different cultures. I guess you could say we're further ahead than some countries as far as the Me Too movement and feminism and things like that. But multiculturalism also plays a huge part even in the United States, I think.
1: Yeah, I think that to say we're further along might be true. But I feel like it should be mad embarrassing that we're not further than we are, considering how much more capability and infrastructure we have to be more advanced. We should be light years ahead of a country that allows a man to rape his wife and she doesn't know that's assault. You know, we should be so much further ahead of that. And instead, we're here. And I think the average amount of time it takes. For someone to like come forward after an assault is something like 20 years. For men, it's often 40 to 50 years to actually admit that they've been assaulted. That's part of the reason that we don't know about men being assaulted. It may be fewer cases than with women, but because of the toxic masculinity that's a part of the American culture, men might never say that they were assaulted. And if they do, it will be maybe to their wife when they're 50 or 60. That's just scary, (laughs) y'all. So we might be ahead, but if we want to give women in Iran and I did Ethiopia for my project um, and Kenya, if we want to give women their hope, we have to be so much further along. There's no excuse for lagging behind and not leading the way with Me Too, in my opinion.
0: Absolutely. I mean, as Professor Fallon kind of mentioned in our previous podcast, you know, I mentioned the points of Dr. Crenshaw. how she wrote this paper in the 90s, Women whose native language isn't English have such a more difficult time when going to shelters because they often don't have translators. And sometimes shelters have this pristine white woman sort of mentality, which is terrible. Since then, it's become a lot more inclusive. But you think about women who are living, say, in America, you know, recently moved to the United States who are of you know, Middle Eastern descent and their husbands are still perpetuating this type of assault and learning that this is a gr- big grievance and yet sometimes the United States may not even have all the resources or their local shelters or their, their local police may still not be able to do anything is very disheartening. And I also think it all just leads back to intersectionality and how I think unique a lot of the feminist movement really needs to start becoming because I think if white women weren't involved, then it wouldn't matter. I say that with very like grave seriousness because white women are, you know, marginalized to white men, but people of color are behind us. You know, we can't just look out for ourselves. We have other sisters and brothers
2: who need our help. I just wanted to bring in, I took, it was a women's studies class at Clemson. It, it wasn't the global one. It was, I think it was just the basic one. And the teacher asked, how many of you guys would say you're feminists? And you would think that everybody in the class would raise their hand, right? About half of the class didn't raise their hand. And she's like, what's the definition of feminism? So people are like looking it up on their phones and they're like, uh, equality between the sexes through activism, all this stuff. She's like, stop it's just equality of the sexes and now she's like now everybody are you guys feminists or what and everybody in the class raises their hands i feel like we have this warped perception of what feminism actually is through media and stuff i think it's important to just know it's not just women trying to be over men or anything like that it's just we're all trying to work together and we have to take into account intersectionality and other people's
1: identities to make it work I'd also like to say that we shouldn't necessarily shift the the baton entirely into women's hands. Just as I mentioned previously, it's a shared effort and it really has to be, especially since still we have more than two-thirds of our government bodies are men still. It's not all about women doing their part for other women. It's about men picking it up a little bit and uh, considering others as well. Again, I don't hate men. That is not what feminism is. And you're right, Alice. I
0: think I just so often misperceive the fact that women just have to go and do this all by themselves. And like you said, one of the biggest reasons why we can't progress more and why more hasn't been done is because we don't have enough males on our side, which again shows you that the U.S. is a predominantly masculine country. It's, very, it's still pretty patriarchal, I would say. Doesn't nearly prioritize women as much as it does for the male. So now that we've touched on all of these tough and heavy subjects, what would you say the favorite part of this class has been? Or what would you say the most fun or most fascinating thing we've done is?
1: I think my favorite part of the class has actually been talking about what we've been learning with you guys. Uh, Just because this has been an online class for anyone who might not know. We've been doing this still during COVID-19 precautions and we've been all online. So we haven't had an in-class experience. Getting to have group members and record a podcast has been great. I'm just really glad that we did this as part of the project instead of making a visual because I actually got to talk to Sarah and Francis and it was awesome. But I guess my favorite piece from the class, I've already read Kimberly Crenshaw for another class and I just really like her, but I think that piece was my favorite because I think at the heart of the hashtag meToo movement, we're We're getting at intersectionality. Creator of the movement is a black woman, and I think that says a lot to the powerful part that people of color can play in the hashtag meToo movement, especially as they are often the the victims. They're more often the victims of sexual assault and violence in the us. Learning more about that has been really helpful for me and very illuminating to me because I want to better understand the experiences of those that are unlike me. And I feel like I come from a privileged position of being both white and not having experienced assault. And I just want to open my heart to those that have and better understand where they're coming from so that I can make sure that no more of them are created. I don't want to see any of my, my friends and strangers that I see that I serve at work every day. I don't want to know that something has happened to them. I don't want it to happen to them.
2: I agree with Alice. I liked making the podcast and getting to talk to Alice and Frances because it's just, it makes it feel more concrete, I guess. I think my favorite piece would be the Chanel Miller book, just because, well, first of all, I haven't read a book in a while, so it was nice, but also- It was just powerful because I'm sure everybody's heard of this, especially like in 2015, 2016 when it was happening, but her coming forward and actually telling the story, I thought that was really powerful and it helps you kind of try to put yourself in the, in her shoes and understand what she's been through. Although, I mean, unless you've experienced sexual assault, I haven't either. You You can't really know what that's like. So I think it's just like a good look inside.
0: So I just want to say to everybody, Sarah just like grabbed at the screen, like a good look inside and was trying to let everyone know what that's a good little look. And I would definitely agree with both Alice and Sarah. It's been really nice to be able to talk about all of the material because I've been absorbing it, but I haven't had a great sounding board and someone to discuss it relate to it and really dive deeper into it and understand other people's opinions. Just like my co-host, I am also a privileged white female who has fortunately never experienced assault. And like Alice, I want to open my heart to others and learn more and what I can do as a bystander or as any person who can do anything to help. But also I do also want to highlight the fact that Sarah has been such an awesome editor to these podcasts because I'm going to put us on blast for a second. We say, uh, like, so yeah, so often. And you would have no (laughs) idea, but they're great filler words, but it doesn't sound great for a podcast. And Sarah goes in and she makes sure that we sound intelligent on this really cool hashtag me to blast. Overall, this is my favorite, but my favorite thing we did Probably was watching Moxie. I have such a crush on Seth, who is this really cool feminist guy. We need millions of Seths in the United States who want to put stars and hearts on their hands to match. And will write his girlfriend's name on his arm in Sharpie because she didn't want to be his property. So she wasn't going to write his on her arm. But, you know, just how willing he was to step up for his girlfriend and her friends. I think it's really important that men start getting into this movement as well as Alice has talked about throughout this whole podcast.
2: So, all right. Until next time girls out that girl's out. (laughs) That was good.